The American Society of Clinical Oncology Annual Meeting 2022 took place on the 3rd to the 7th of June in Chicago, Illinois. We had loads of great updates and discussions during the meeting and spoke to the presenters of some of the biggest trials. In this podcast, we're going through some of the highlights from our interviews with leading experts in breast cancer. First, we heard from Kevin Kalinsky of Winship Cancer Institute about the phase two maintain trial. So the maintain trial was a randomized study which was looking to address the question of whether there's benefit of CDK4-6 inhibitor after a patient has had a tumor that's already progressed on a CDK4-6 inhibitor. So the design of the study, patients could have had any endocrine therapy or any CDK4-6 inhibitor, and then were randomized to switching the endocrine therapy with or without the CDK4-6 inhibitor ribocyclic, and it was a placebo-controlled trial. Primary endpoint was looking at progression-free survival, and we saw a statistically significant improvement in the patients who were randomized to ribocyclic as opposed to placebo, uh, with a hazard ratio that was a little less than 0.6. Dr. Kalinsky also told us about the Phase 3 post-monarch trial. We discussed the MAINTAIN trial, which was a randomized Phase 2 trial. Uh, Post-monarch is a study which is a randomized Phase 3 study, which is a study that is also looking at the question about CDK4-6 inhibition after CDK4-6 inhibition. This particular study is looking with abemocyclid. Uh, and the study also is not just including patients who've had tumors that have progressed on a CDK4-6 inhibitor in the metastatic setting, but also for patients who've had tumors that have progressed on a CDK4-6 inhibitor in the adjuvant setting. Because that is one question that remains, is what about a patient who received a CDK4-6 inhibitor in the operable setting, should they continue on a CDK4-6 inhibitor if the cancer progresses? And the post-monarch study is a study that is continuing to accrue patients now. Lajos Puste of Yale School of Medicine discussed an exploratory analysis looking at event-free survival from the Phase 3 Keynote 522 trial. So Keynote 522 was the first large randomized trial that tested pembrolizumab together with new adjuvant chemotherapy followed by an adjuvant phase in triple negative disease. What we present today is the final pathological COVID response rate results from the trial including the entire population of about 1,100 patients, as well as the distribution of the residual cancer burden. The residual cancer burden is the metric of the extent of residual disease that survived the preoperative chemotherapy. And we created three categories, actually four categories. RCB0, corresponding to no residual disease or pathologic COVID response. RCB1, sort of minimal residual disease. RCB2, kind of moderate amount of residual disease. And RCB3, as extensive residual disease. The most important finding of the study really is that the pembrolizumab benefit extends beyond increasing pathological COVID response rate. In the final analysis, we continue to see an improvement in the pathological COVID response rate, but it's less than during the first interim analysis, which was the primary analysis. So the difference is about an 8% improvement in the pathological COVID response rate relative to the 13% at the first time. However, the event-free survival curves show that there is a significant improvement in event-free survival in the RCB2 category. So patients with residual disease, that's moderate amount, still derived a huge amount of benefit from pembrolizumab in the new adjuvant followed by the adjuvant setting. So I think the most important message really is that pembrolizumab provides benefit beyond improving pathological CR rate alone. 
Professor Pustai also discussed the remaining questions on the use of neoadjuvant pembrolizumab in early triple negative breast cancer following Keynote 522. As every good trial shows up, probably more questions than it answers. And this is also an example. So the RCD3 group, that is patients with extensive residual disease, that was approximately 5% of the trial population do really badly with or without pembrolizumab. So clearly there is a subset of patients who still require new therapies because even the best existing treatments are suboptimal, woefully suboptimal. The rate of recurrence was very, very high. Um, another question, of course, is how to make these treatments the most cost-effective, which would require a selection marker that identifies the group really benefited from the addition of, of um, pembrolizumab. So please remember that even in the control group, the pathological COVID response rates are around 54%. So <clears throat> half of the patients end up with a really good outcome. Um, so the biomarker component of this study will be very interesting. Erica Hamilton of Sarah Canham Research Institute updated us on the safety follow-up results from Destiny Breast 03. Trastuzumab Juruxtecan was actually initially approved based on the Destiny Breast 01 trial in later line patients with metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer. Destiny Breast 03 was the trial of which uh, Trastuzumab Juruxtecan was compared directly to TDM1, which at the time was our current second line uh, option for our patients with HER2 positive disease and led to the approval or the expanded approval for Trastuzumab Juruxtecan in May of 2022 for this patient population. Those that had already seen Taxane and Trastuzumab in the metastatic setting or relapsed within six months of neoadjuvant or adjuvant therapy. And so what this study was, was a safety update around Destiny Breast 03. We now have a longer follow-up for our patients that were on trastuzumab juruxtecan, a median treatment duration now of over 16 months for those patients. And what we saw was grade three or higher adverse events were very similar between the arms, about 53% for trastuzumab juruxtecan and about 50% for TDM1. Side effects that led to one of the drugs being stopped was a little bit higher for trastuzumab juruxtecan, 14.8% compared to 7.3% for TDM1. And largely it was about the 8% of patients that had to discontinue due to ILD pneumonitis that was really driving that 14% discontinuations for trastuzumab juruxtecan. We saw that nausea, vomiting, as well as alopecia or hair loss was more common with trastuzumab juruxtecan, but fatigue was very similar between trastuzumab juruxtecan or TDM1. And then interestingly, we did a little bit of a different analysis. Since TDXD really works so much better and allows people to stay on treatment for longer without their cancer growing, we looked at something called exposure-adjusted incidence rates, or EAIRs. And this is a standardized measure of risk per patient year. And it's commonly used to describe safety in longer-term studies where the follow-up duration may be different between the arms. And across all of the exposure-adjusted incidence rates looked at, you know, grade three, serious, et cetera, all of it was actually lower for trastuzumab juruxtecan compared to TDM1, except for one parameter, and that was um, adverse events leading to treatment discontinuation, again, because of that 8% of patients that had to discontinue due to ILD pneumonitis. If we look at the time 
to either needing to hold the drug or to dose reduce the drug. These times were actually quite a bit longer with trastuzumab deruxtecan compared to TDM1. And so when we put all of this together, our take-home message really was that compared to the benefit patients are receiving for trastuzumab deruxtecan, uh, the side effects really are very manageable. Nausea and vomiting tends to be the most prominent side effect are mainly low grade, and it peaks in initial treatment cycles and then stays about the same throughout the treatment course. So really emphasizing the fact that we can help these patients tolerate better um, by starting multidrug antiemetic or nausea medicines up front and very reassuring that we uh, saw, you know, the time to reductions or dose holds being very favorable with trastuzumab deruxtecan compared to TDM1. The one other very important parameter we looked at was more details around ILD pneumonitis. There were some fatal cases of ILD pneumonitis back in Destiny Bresto 1, which was our first experience with the drug. But now with Destiny Bresto 3, with more information about when to hold drug, the knowledge that this is a side effect, how to manage it, we saw no grade four or grade five ILD or pneumonitis cases. And in fact, even grade three was less than 1% at 0.8%. So I think this really gave us confidence that trastuzumab deruxtecan is quite safe for our patients and is very appropriate to move up into the earlier line settings like first line or neoadjuvant or adjuvant where there are ongoing trials currently. A highlight for breast cancer at ASCO 2022 was the Destiny Breast 04 trial, which reported potentially practice-changing data for HER2 low patients. Hope Rugo of UCSF Helen Didloff Family Comprehensive Cancer Center talked to us about these results. Yeah, Destiny Breast 04 trial, which we participated in, and I'm honored to be an author of, uh, focused on patients who had centrally confirmed HER2 low breast cancer, of which a small subset were allowed to have triple negative disease as well. In total, in the trial population, only 58 patients had triple negative disease. HER2 low is defined, and the, for the purposes of that study, as immunohistochemical staining of the cancer at one plus or two plus without evidence of HER2 gene amplification. And as I mentioned, this was centrally confirmed because there's a lot of variation at people's sites in terms of what is called one plus, two plus, or zero. So they didn't include the zero, although I have to say the discussion of Destiny Breast 04 made the point, which we've seen in another trial called DAISY, that even the the tumors that are IHC zero actually have a little bit of HER2. And so what that means for response, we're seeing responses in the IHC zero in some settings, we don't know. But regardless, Destiny Breast 04 looked only at patients who had HER2 low disease. They did not have to receive prior CDK4-6 inhibitors, a subset did, and they could only have received one or two prior chemotherapy lines for metastatic disease. The majority of patients had hormone receptor positive cancer. That was the primary endpoint. In that patient group, there was a statistically significant and clinically very important doubling in progression-free survival and a dramatic improvement in overall survival. Because they were able to see that in the hormone receptor positive group, they then went on and looked at the entire group, adding the 58 patients who had triple negative disease. In that group also, there was a significant improvement in PFS and OS. They looked at the 58 patients with triple negative disease. It's very hard because it's a tiny number, but it did look as though 
that they still saw an improvement in PFS and OS, although outcome was worse, as you would expect. It's just so hard in a tiny group of patients, but it's very encouraging. In terms of toxicity, we had seen a very nice assessment of toxicity over time from Destiny Breast 03 presented by Erica Hamilton yesterday at, or the Saturday, uh, first day of breast presentations at ASCO 2022. Uh, and this data fit well into that uh, setting. So it doesn't appear that the toxicity is any different if you have HER2 low disease or HER2 positive disease. Nausea was the uh, most common toxicity, although grade one and two, and diarrhea at a lesser level. Uh, the you know risk of uh, left ventricular ejection fraction dysfunction and ejection fraction dysfunction is concerning, but it really wasn't an issue in this trial. You know, we worry about it because the antibody is trastuzumab, but these patients did quite well. So that was very encouraging. And having treated a lot of patients, I've never seen a decline in left ventricular ejection fraction um, or cardiac function. But the other uh, adverse event of special interest is interstitial lung disease or pneumonitis. That is a known toxicity of this drug and some other antibody drug conjugates, notably not for sasetizumab, uh, but, and not for all Deruxtecan ADCs, but for trastuzumab, Deruxtecan, um, and some others. And what they saw was, uh, a, a about a 10% rate of overall ILD, but there were three deaths. It's 0.8%, uh, but I think it highlights the real importance of uh, first identifying pneumonitis very early before it's symptomatic and treating early, as well as stopping when patients become symptomatic because you know, it's fascinating. You never see grade four ILD. You only see grade three and five, you die. You know, so if you really have that progression, it's bad. So, you know, I think that as we move forward and start using this drug in a huge number of hormone receptor positive patients who are HER2 low, uh, we need to set up guidelines for how often to do scans because in the sort of era of cost control and not radiating our patients, sometimes I see patients who have scans very infrequently and that really won't work with this drug. The incidence is greatest in the first year. So the idea would be that you really do need to do something to image the lungs, a CT scan without contrast at least every nine weeks for the first year. Then you could be less frequent. Um, I have seen a little ILD in the second year, didn't progress to anything, but we did hold drugs. So. It's just a very important caveat. We also heard from Erica Hamilton on the impact of these results and the next steps for this line of research. Yeah, so Destiny Bresto 4 kind of uh, stole the show at ASCO. And so this was our first uh, large trial really showing a benefit of trastuzumab deruxtecan or a HER2 targeted antibody drug conjugate for those patients that are HER2 low. Now, HER2 low patients have typically been classified really as HER2 negative. You were either positive or you were negative. And what we're realizing is there's this new subset of HER2 low where three plus by IHC or FISH positive is positive and one plus or two plus by IHC is low. And then the negatives are really HER2 zeros. So zero by IHC. And so this trial was a relatively large trial and looked at patients that had IHC one plus or two plus. And this really could uh, encompass both ER positive patients or triple negative patients. They just had to have low HER2 expression. And it was wildly positive. 
um, big improvements in progression-free survival, improvements in overall survival. There were a smaller number uh, of patients with triple negative disease, but still really quite encouraging. So this really teaches us that what we have typically thought about HER2 positive disease, that you had to have high expression to respond to agents, is not true when we have drugs like trastuzumab deruxtecan around. So this was really reassuring and probably our action item is really going back and talking to our pathologists about the fact that one plus on IHC is now actionable um, before it never has been. And there's some worry about the differences between zeros and one plus and how reliable can we actually call those. And so we're going to need to talk to our pathologists and let them know that it's not just three plus that's actionable any longer. These one pluses and two pluses are as well. That wraps up our highlights in breast cancer from ASCO 2022. We have loads more interviews from experts in breast cancer and beyond on vjoncology.com, so why not explore? If you enjoyed this podcast, then you can subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including Spotify and Apple, to make sure you don't miss an episode. And follow us on Twitter for all the latest updates in oncology. Stay tuned for more podcasts covering the highlights from ASCO 2022.